Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phyllis Gove. I'm your special guest host uh, this week, Emily St. James, filling in for your normal host, who is... I'm just so despondent right now. No, as who is like, you know, some younger, hotter woman who Al Pacino oh, wow. can fall in love with. You know, actually, I think Al Pacino would have hit on me in this movie. And I'm just going to absolutely listen. All he's doing is smelling me. I smell really nice. (laughs) He does love the scent of a woman. Mm. Um, So here we are today with Rochelle Lefebvre back again to talk with us about um, Martin Brest's film, Scent of a Woman, a film that... uh, lives in some infamy in the sense that I think a lot of people feel like maybe Denzel Washington probably should have won for Malcolm X over Al Pacino in this film, but we can have that discussion and we will have that discussion. Um, But Rochelle, I reached out to you a few months ago and I was like, obviously Mm -hmm. love to have you on for 1992. And this was one of the, one of the films you picked right out of the gate. Yes. And I'm very excited to talk about this film with you because I would argue that maybe more so than any guest in our 1999 podcast, you were able to perhaps change opinions. Uh huh. <laughs> um, I know, uh, per the text that I received from Emily St. James last night, not a fan of this movie. So uh-huh. I hate it. I <laughs> hate it. Hate yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So, and, mm-hmm. and you had not seen this film before, Emily. 
correct? I, I, I think I have. It's one of those like weird ones where I like may have watched it like on video in like the late nineties. A lot of it was familiar to me. Sure. I did not have a strong, like, like connection to my memory sure. of it though. So it's what also, it's bounced off me. Yeah. It's also hitting. And we will talk about this because Rochelle, you came on our 89 Patreon to talk about dead poet society, another mm-hmm. boarding school movie. I would argue a superior boarding school movie. No, far no, superior. Yeah, a far yes. superior boarding school movie. Emily doesn't like Dead Poet Society. Either. I don't I, hate <laughs> is a strong word. I, I'm very much of the Ebert school of this is like two and a half stars just misses, you know? Like uh, it, Okay. Yeah. I, I think that that I, I suddenly want to have a different podcast. I suddenly want it to be I suddenly <laughs> like, I, I yourself. Can yeah. I change? Well, I <laughs> we're we're gonna have this discussion and yeah. I'm excited <laughs> to unpack all of this. Um and and I'm excited to sort it, this is one of those things, Emily, where I was like, this movie, which I have not watched in quite some time, a movie that I loved as a kid, watched it many, many times as a kid, um, kind of, you know, had a bit of an imprint on me, but I had not mm-hmm. watched it in a while and was not sure what watching this through the lens of 2023 was going to do to a film literally called Scent of a Woman, which is, you know, perhaps... Mm-hmm. A slightly, you know, it's a choice. Um, and I will say that there are things that bump me this time around, but there are also things that I feel really I still love. Um, there are sequences and performances, and I think there's just a lot of stuff in it. Similar to you, Emily, when I hit play on this movie and realized that it was two hours and 40 minutes long, I was like, really? <laughs> like, I so I go back and look at a lot of contemporary reviews, and by far the biggest criticism from even from people who liked the movie it was like this is at least a half hour too long, and like well, I don't think they're wrong. Yeah, it's it is two movies, right? Like yeah. it, it mm-hmm. is sort of there's Frank's story and there's uh, Charlie's story, and I and surprisingly they have sort of equal um, amounts of screen time. I guess is the best way, like real estate in the script. When usually I think you would imagine that this would be more pivoted towards Frank and Charlie's, I guess basically what I'm getting at is there's like two climaxes to this movie. There's like two kind of significant things that are happening in parallel to one another, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I would also say watching it this time, I didn't feel the length of the film, despite the fact that it is long. I do think it moves relatively well. Something that Martin Brest doesn't do well after this movie. Meet Joe Black and Geely are both painfully long movies (laughs) that (laughs) struggle with pacing. Um, So all this is to say, Rochelle, you picked this film. Why is this one of your favorite films of 1982? What what sort of, what what speaks to you about this movie? Yeah, um, I'm not sure it is one of my favorite films okay, but i okay. but 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 specific to that is that yeah. i i picked it with enthusiasm for exactly the reason for all the thoughts you had going back watching sure. it because it was like i saw this when it, when it first came out yeah. and, and i was young <laughs> and i remember loving it and i it's called scent of a woman so had no trouble remembering that it might be problematic now <laughs> that it might have been problematic then i just hadn't didn't yes. I just hadn't had those conversations yet to give myself permission to recognize how problematic it was. Um, and those awareness gaps have since been filled in for the most part sure. in large sure. part. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was really curious um, and I was expecting um, I was expecting what I got, which is I was expecting similar to you to like really still love 
some parts of it and and it just in speaking for myself loving some of it so much that I'm not willing to just throw the whole thing away um and also that it was vi- there were things that were very very hard to watch and I completely understand how someone seeing it for the first time within say oh I don't know even the last decade might be like no no <laughs> no it's um I, yeah. yeah I get that but I think it's I think it's worth discussing oh absolutely I mean listen I, I yeah. it, it should also be said that this was a very big movie in 1992 okay this yes. movie was nominated for many academy awards we mentioned that it won best actor um you know this uh was a big movie i and 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 a little bit surprisingly so i do think that it's really kind of coasting on the charm of al pacino um in a big way and there were a bunch of actors that were offered the role before pacino all of the we'll, we'll talk about that but you know the, the 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 usual suspects um in terms of it being a big scenery chewing Oscar Beatty role like it's it's all of those things from an Academy Award nominated um, screenwriter who has sort of built this thing to meet the moment and I think that in 92 it did that and in hindsight now um, obviously there's a bunch of things that we would perhaps change Um, I will say I remembered it being bigger like it got it got Hmm. four Oscar nominations I would have sworn it was like six or seven Right. Uh, and like ones, the bar, I mean, the, picture, the, actor, the, screenplay. Director. Yeah, there, yeah. there are certainly four, like yeah. four of the big categories. It's not yeah. like, but I, you know, I remembered it being like a major Oscar yeah. player. And if it was, you would expect it to get like editing sure. or yeah, yeah, score, yeah. Or like Chris O'Donnell would have snuck in or something like that. Right. Although he, like, baby, he's, he's very, he's very cute. He's very sweet. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if he deserved to be nominated for this film. Um, <laughs> I also like it made plenty of money in the U.S. box office, but I had remembered it being, you know, like a hundred million grosser, and it's a sixty million grosser in the U.S. Obviously, it made a lot overseas. One thirty-four like, over uh, worldwide. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but like it made sixty million here, yeah. which is respectable, especially in '92. But I remembered it being a much bigger hit than it actually was. So I I I agree with you. I mean, it is it is one of those movies that, and I I, I think similarly to you, Rochelle had sort of this um, odd, perhaps, imprint on me at the time. And I don't know if part of it is the boarding school thing, which is that I Mm -hmm. I tend to like boarding school movies and TV Mm -hmm. shows. Um, Although we're going to do School Ties later in this miniseries, and I have not seen School Ties, so I'm excited to talk about that. Um, (laughs) But I think there is an affinity for that um, boarding school stuff, even though I would argue... I think it might take up a little bit too much real estate in the script. Um, But I remembered having an affinity for that. And I remember being a 12-year-old kid and thinking that Al Pacino's performance, to a 12-year-old anyway, was, like, really good, right? Like, I, I, it it felt like a sort of classically over-the-top performance that I found Mm -hmm. really kind of entertaining. Now... I would say, and again, I do think it's baked into it, but like he is this somewhat morally sort of, he's a kind of some sort of a repellent character. Like there is stuff in him that I know is sort of baked into the role, but there is stuff that I do kind of question whether or not um, 
they kind of got lost in the woods a little bit with the character. There's like monologues, especially when it comes to his womanizing, which is is done through the lens of, oh, don't worry, he's just an innocuous old coot type thing. But it's a little right. gross at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little gross every time. Um, <laughs> it's a little gross every time. Um, but, you know, just to just just to dive right in. Yes, please, please, yeah. <laughs> um, just to avoid the, the surface altogether and take the big plunge. Um, so so I, I really had um I really had two things uh happening for me simultaneously and this was I was sort of arguing with myself as I was watching it. Um and I often find myself um, you know, as a just just as a um sort of as as an oftentimes walking stereotype of some of the tropes we have about cis women. Um, like things like I need my partner to tell me that that I'm, you know, and I don't want to generalize. So I'm literally just making it so specific to me and my identity and myself. Um, but like, I need my husband to tell me that I'm beautiful, like, you know, on a semi-regular basis, like I, I need him to like the package of me and not just like, not just that I'm smart, right? Mm -hmm. Not just that I, I don't know, I'm a great mom or whatever the, all the magical things he would say about me if he was here. Um, I, I also need him to think that I'm sexy and I think it's hot when he tells me that I smell good or he, you know, wants to touch my hair or like whatever it is. Um, and so I really found myself both like repulsed by ease of the objectification, um, of women, uh, in this and all the obvious things there. Right. And couldn't help imagining myself, you know, being hit on in a bar by someone sort of Al Pacino-esque in this film, like Colonel Slade-esque. And I went, no, there's no part of me that would think it was charming. And actually the fact that he thought he was charming and actually someone else trying to go, but he's so charming, would really only make it worse. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, my necklaces are clanging, so I'm going to um, take some of them off while we're talking. <laughs> um, but there was also the part of me that was able to look at it through the lens of like, Let's go back in time, like we have done in other podcasts, right? Like when we look at movies, and you have done so many times, I'm sure, with so many guests, where you go, let's talk about when this movie was made and the conversations we were and weren't having and the awareness that we had around these things and that we didn't back then. And there was a part of me that was able to go, okay, it's super creepy and this movie shouldn't be made now and I wouldn't recommend it to someone for the first time. But like, do I understand the version of this is the time it was made and there is something about the beauty of a woman that 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 all the great poetry the paintings the like the history the like art history is full of dissertations about like the 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 inspiration that is a woman's body and smell and and everything and so i just went is there a place for that in this movie like is it possible that there's any of that in the intention and that it wasn't just simple objectification and so i don't know but i'm like interested in thinking about it out loud no, absolutely i i mean emily I, i'm gonna let you reply to that uh i mean i think i definitely think this movie is riddled with misogynistic moments that's mm-hmm. not what that's not why i hate this movie like oh, i think okay oh good I think, I think like, I actually agree with you. Like, I think if we look at it from the perspective of 1992, like this movie is very firmly situated in the male gaze, which is like problematic in Mm -hmm. and of itself. But as movies within the male gaze go, 
There are much more offensive ones. There are much worse ones. I mean, I'm bisexual. When I saw Gabrielle Anwar, I was like, yeah, she's she's hot. Good for her. Uh, like, I got why the movie was going out of its way to sort of bend itself around how beautiful she was. I think Al Pacino sells a lot of it in a way that makes it feel less offensive yep. than it is on the surface. I do think, yeah, this is a movie about how you can just smell what a hot woman looks like. And like that turns you into like uh, the equivalent of one of those like horses that could like do math, but like, like for um, what a woman looks like, uh-huh. it just, uh-huh. I don't know. Like, I certainly think that this movie has a lot of problems in terms of like modern views of how we talk about women in film and, you know, how we talk about women in fiction but within its extremely masculine world and extremely masculine worldview, it could have been a lot worse while not excusing the fact that it's still pretty bad. It's basically my comment on that. I, I, I hear that. I agree with mm-hmm. that. I think that I agree with both of you, not to, you know, not to play moderator, but I do agree with both of you. I, I do think as well that, you know, for all intents and purposes, this movie is from a screenplay perspective. It's very kind of like screenplay one hundred and one, right? In terms of there, there are sort of it's not breaking any molds. It's not really doing anything new or fresh or particularly. Um, uh, it's just you know, it's not breaking new ground. But I do think that within the, the the box that it's painted itself in, I do think it's relatively effective. I think about sequences in this mm-hmm. film. Um, I think about the Ferrari scene. I think about, you know, the the tango scene. Um, I, w- I would even go as far as to say as as kind of pat and easy as the, uh, the um, I don't know what you would call it, this sort of trial or whatever this thing is that, that is- Emily The courtroom drama portion of it. The courtroom drama component <laughs> of this, yeah. where you just sort of give Al Pacino the opportunity to yell a bunch and smack the table and, you know, do all that. Again, like, it is somewhat effective, or at least it was to me. Um, It was to me back in the day, and watching it today, it's still kind of checked boxes for me in terms of just a workmanlike script, a very Hollywood Oscar Beatty thing that I understand, you know, A, how it got made, B, why it was, you know, as lauded as it was at the time to some degree, um, you know, and, and I do think that, um, it's problematic. I specifically, the scene that I really kind of wasn't sure about. And again, like this movie, if, if it's palatable at all, it's because of Al Pacino's performance in a lot of ways, but the monologue he gives on the plane to New York about women and just objectifying them in every pot, like literally in every possible uh-huh. way you could, is hard to watch like just straight up hard to watch but at the time to your point Rochelle there's a part of me that everyone's like oh what a what a what a guy what Al Pacino he can sell anything I don't know right well he does a great job of selling it because he really like the part that he leans into just fully and 100% is the idea that he's like that he's in love with women like that they put that yes. all women that they put yes. all the beauty and all the purpose into yeah. life and yes. that is very and that is very different than that women serve a purpose 
right? They serve, they're here to serve us. They are, right? It's like the idea that women are below as opposed to what he's doing, which is they are above. Our job is to be in service to them. It's this kind of worship, right? Um, That he has this like in love sort of infatuation worship thing. Um, And so that, that, is both in the script and also not like, I think that energetically it's the performance choice that saves it. Like, I think that I hope that the screenwriter, you know, looking back at the film now, I hope the screenwriter is going, Oh my God, like, thank God. Thank God that he leaned into that, you know? Um, Cause I do think he, yeah. he saved it in, in some way from being, as Emily said, you know, it could have been far worse. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So there's that. And then also, um, just like, you know, in the beginning when you pointed out that this was two movies, and I don't know if this is too, like, I'm tangential too quickly, but no, it no. really is two movies. And I think one of them holds up and one of them doesn't. Right? So, like, for me, the the Chris O'Donnell, the, the, the Charlie and Colonel Slade part, um, not that there aren't parts of that that I don't love, and not that there aren't parts mm-hmm. of that that don't hold up in terms of a story, in terms of father figures, in terms of redemption, in terms of, you know, all the themes. Um, but as a film, you know, you can get that from other movies. You can leave that. Like, fine. It's too probably, and the woman, all the women's stuff, it's too, it's too problematic a way to do it. So leave it. In terms of the courtroom drama portion, in terms of this private school, you know, this this tribunal or whatever it is, um, I mean, I don't know about you, but given the current climate, talking about looking something from a current lens, I mean, I want I want that speech played on the jumbotron in Congress right now, right? Like, no, I want I want I want a man like Al Pacino to stand up in front of other men in power. And say the word integrity 16 times over and over and over again, and then slam something down and then threaten to take a flamethrower to the building. Like, this is what I want for the state of those spaces. Those spaces now need Al Pacino to walk into every single one of them. So that for me felt felt resonant more than it did in 1992. Before we move too far past this, I want to say, I think yeah. the Al Pacino speeches, yeah, I agree. He saves what's kind of on the page, kind of a bad speech. Bo Goldman, one of the great screenwriters. I don't think this is his best work. I don't, I don't, not too taken with this one. Um, I, uh, I think the movie lets him down weirdly because he talks about, you know, sort of every woman is beautiful. Every woman in this movie is a conventionally attractive cis white woman who's like fits a very narrow standard of feminine beauty Absolutely. and like, Obviously, it's 1992. I don't know how far they were going to go outside of that, but they don't even try in any way. And that, I think, lets the movie down a little bit because it feels like it's not practicing what it's preaching in a weird way. So I don't know. I I absolutely agree on both points. You know, Bo Bo Goldman has a quote about, he says, if there's a moral to this film, it's that if we leave ourselves open and available to the surprising contradictions in life, we will find the strength to go on. Um, I don't that made me want to take a flamethrower or something. Go on. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Uh, ex- I was literally just thinking, like, I was reading it. And I was like, this is very vague. And I don't quite know exactly what he's really saying. Um, I, I, I think, and I'm going to kind of put words in his mouth, but I do think to tap into sort of what you're both speaking about in terms of the speech that Al Pacino gives at the end of the film, I do think that uh, it's 
perhaps the film is about just having the strength to believe in yourself to a certain degree, right? To have your own moral compass that you actually believe in and stick to your guns. I think that Charlie's whole arc is about that. And I think that Frank's is the inverse of that, which is that it feels as though he's given up on his life and given up on what he could possibly add to this world. And by the end of the film, in theory, he's figured out a way through that depression and through that turmoil and, and sees a, a strength that maybe he can move on uh, or go on. I, I do think that in theory, one of the things about this film, I think ultimately is there's a fair amount of projection going on for me, which is that I watch this film and there's a part of me that's kind of, elevating it to some degree based on mm -hmm. a nostalgia and how much I liked it as a kid, but also because to your point, Emily, about like kind of the film, letting the script down, there's a part of me that kind of projects a better movie onto this, if that makes any sense. Like, I think that, um, you know, it, it is interesting, not even, you know, through our 99 podcast and, and 89 as well. Like it's hard for me in a lot of ways to be critical of some of these films that feel like bearing walls of not just me as a person, but me as a viewer and me as a writer mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And so I look at a film like this, that was one of those types of films for me as a kid. And it's hard for me to kind of really parse out the good and the bad a little bit, just because it's kind of all mixed together in my head. But some of these films, I mean, I'm thinking about like, you know, when we talked about when Harry met Sally on our, I, I cannot be critical of that movie. That movie, in my opinion, is perfect. No notes. I think it's great. I'm sure there are problems with it. I'm sure that if we wanted to put it under a microscope, we could. This film, far more problematic just because I think what you were speaking of earlier, Rochelle, of this idea of uh, objectification and also putting them on a pedestal, this idea of, of us sort of us being men, I guess, and women, but or, or sort of this idea of... Um, us needing to meet their moment is a fine line that I think this film doesn't navigate particularly well is ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, no, I did, definitely. And it was sort of this, it, it feels like the, it feels like the better choice of like what was available in terms of making this movie, yes. this script, you yes. know um, it feels like, yeah, it feels like the better choice. I also, um, I think it's I think it's interesting, like the the thing that you mentioned about, you know, what did you call it? The bearing wall. You know, I, I, I reference things from my youth as, you know, like the cornerstones. Like, yeah, so I very much appreciate that. And um, and I don't know, like, I wonder if because uh, I, I, I think about children's movies, like the kids movies that I watched. Right. Or like the young elementary school sort of age movies that I watched that I go you go back and you watch them and some of them are amazing and they hold up and some of them you just go this is terrible and you can't get past you can't get past the crappy special effects or whatever it is you can't get past anymore it doesn't age well right um and i and i do this mental thing where i separate out the adult viewer in me recognizing shoddy special effects bad screenwriting terrible acting you know whatever it is that i'm that i'm contending with in the moment from from whatever magic took place when i was whatever age I was when I saw it and what the movie did for me and what it represented and how it transformed me or, or whatever. And I think in hearing you talk about this movie that way, because um, I'm not sure how old you were. I was, I think 13 when this movie came out. Right. So like seventh, seventh grade um, going into, you know, going into eighth grade, maybe uh, seventh grade. Um, so I don't know. I guess my question is sort of like, 
at what age do we, do we draw a line? Like what, what, what is the appropriate age? And this is sort of, you know, again, like a little off the mark in terms of like direction, but like, I think it's a fair question when you're looking back at movies, if you're going to do this, if you're going to get movies out, dust them off and watch them again, is there an age? Is there a line where you go, I'm going to, I'm still going to love this movie and I'm going to talk about how great it is in whatever way it formed me as a child and the purpose that it served. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to go to my grave saying that those things were awesome at the time and so meaningful to me. Um, or am I just going to allow myself to change my opinion of this movie as an adult and go, actually, it's not a good movie uh, or it's problematic or, you know, and I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going, I don't know. There's like, I want to do 13 year old me wants to defend the role that this movie played and the impacts that it had yeah. in certain areas when I was, when I saw it, that I, it was effective know, in that way. And isn't yes. that what a movie, a good movie is supposed to do? in that in in its time in that moment you're you're raising something that i think we grapple with continually it feels like um mm -hmm. you know i i think i and by that i mean in the sense that um not to give film twitter any real power but i do feel like periodically every couple of days <clears throat> they'll pick some random movie from the 90s that they decide to hate and then everyone has to defend this movie. I remember, you know, a few months ago, someone decided to hate on Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. It was just a thing uh, that everyone decided to do. And then everyone sort of rallied around it and it was what it was. I, I bring this up just to say that, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, that I pride myself to some degree on when it comes to this podcast is the reevaluation of things, right? I think you can have both these things i think both these things can exist i can love this film when i was 12 i can watch this film now i can see things that i still like about it and i can exist in those two spaces um and i think that you know as we evolve we change our opinions change and we change as people and i think that it's important that the way we see things is changed as well um so this is all just kind of a, a, a bigger conversation and it is maybe a little ironic that it's about scent of woman of all movies, but right. we're having it. I, yes, go ahead. Emily. I, this, the whole thing is so foreign to the way I consume anything. Sure. Like oh, interesting. the number, the number of, and I mean like entertainment properties that I feel like so conclusively formed me as a person that I can't, don't have any objectivity about them. I can probably count on two hands and I was going to say one hand and I just, I just, uh, I, I gave a more <laughs> slightly liberal estimate. Like I, some of that is, I just wasn't allowed to watch shit as a kid. Like I grew up in right. an extremely repressive household, you know? Um, and some of it is also that some of the things that were hugely important to me as a kid now, like I look at them, like I loved Indiana Jones and the temple of doom when I was a kid. And now I look at it and I'm like, this is so racist. <laughs> I can, cannot in good conscience. I can be like, the minecart chase is brilliant, a brilliant piece of staging. The yep. movie as a whole, you know, Harrison Ford is incredible in that movie. The movie is blah, blah, blah. And like, so I do think there is that sort of that thing that, that we all do as adults when we come across things from our child. But like, I just, either it was a thing that I consumed as an older teenager when you're starting to get credit, you're starting to be more critical about things uh, and, or it's a thing that I like watched as a kid and really loved, but now I'm coming to it from a very different perspective. Cause I've changed my identity and name like seven times at this point. 
<laughs> and so like I'm ever I'm looking at everything as a totally different person. You know, I was I think some of this is just transness. I was trying to find my way into a movie like this from a perspective other than the one I should have been. And therefore I just like whatever uh, a few good men is a movie we watched on this show that I liked much less now than I did back then. I still, that's a good movie. It's, it's a movie I enjoyed. And I think it's, it's entertaining and all of these things. But when I watched it now, I was like, Oh, I, when I watched this in 1990, whatever, I was trying to be Tom Cruise and that felt wrong. That felt like a thing I couldn't like grapple with, couldn't put myself in that headspace. And now I watch it and I'm like, Demi Moore gets kind of shit on in this movie. Doesn't she? And like, that's like all I can see. So I think it is just literally like, I don't have this experience of things and like being a co-host of this podcast. That's a very like weird position to be in. Cause we've had one movie we've talked about where I feel like my nostalgia from my childhood has matched up with watching as an adult and that's Aladdin. And I still was like, mm, there's a lot of stuff in this movie. I'm not <laughs> sure about, but you know what? Prince Ali fucking slaps. So I'm going to just give, I, I mean, I, I think, First of all, I absolutely hear you, Emily, that, that this is, I think part of this experiment, I don't want to speak for you, Emily, but part of this experiment of going down this road of 1992 with you um, is that you don't have much of a connection to a lot of these films, right? Like you didn't mm -hmm. see a lot of these films when they came out, um, so they didn't have sort of the same um, effect on you, which I find fascinating, and that's part of one of the many, many reasons why I want to do this podcast with you. Um, and this was a movie in particular that I specifically texted you before you watched it. I was like, very curious to hear what you think of this film um, for a myriad of reasons. And listen, your dislike of the film is obviously completely justified because you're approaching it from an emotional and an intellectual perspective that, you know, is why I appreciate doing this podcast with you. Um, I think that, you know, I think that people are a little dismissive of this movie. I'm not saying you are. I'm saying that there are people that are a little glib about this film now because I think everyone's just sort of like, it's the hoo-ha thing and Al Pacino won for the for the career yeah. and not for the performance and the this, that, and whatever. It and has that's gotten, totally fair. It has gotten boiled down into a movie in the collective imagination that is not particularly accurate to what the movie is. Correct. The movie itself is more thoughtful, is trying things that uh, I don't think it succeeds at, but it is trying them. And it is like more subdued. I genuinely started this movie and was like, this is very slow and very sleepy. I got like 15 minutes in and texted films like I'm going to fall asleep. And then like it picked up. And actually, weirdly, this is a thing that happens to me sometimes. I just fundamentally did not buy a core tenet of this movie, which we'll talk about in a second. And that as the movie got better, I hated it more because I was like, you are trying to get me to buy a thing I don't believe. Right. And I felt like I was being sold a bill of goods. But that said, as we, I got into it, I was like, this movie is not at all its cultural perception. No. Pacino's performance is pretty subdued. Like, it's certainly more over the top than he had been. But it's definitely a performance that is trying to be something uh, nuanced and real. He's trying to be a real person as opposed to some of the stuff he would do in the wake of this where he just well, like, played everything to yeah. the hilt. So... This movie's become like this movie has been remembered as its worst qualities mm -hmm. in a way that heightens mm -hmm. those worst qualities in a way that they aren't actually in the movie. I think is is I agree. I mean, mm -hmm. before we get into all of this, 
I do want to give a little bit of context 40 minutes into this episode, just so, you know, for the people <laughs> that have not actually seen this movie, very briefly, I'm just going to say Frank Slade is a retired uh, lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. He's blinded and impossible to get along with. Charlie is at school and looking forward to college. Uh, to help pay for a trip home for Christmas, he agrees to look after Frank over Thanksgiving. Frank's niece says this will be easy money, but she didn't reckon on Frank spending his Thanksgiving in New York. Sent a woman opened on December 23rd, 1992 against A Few Good Men, Aladdin, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, The Bodyguard, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make $134 million on a $31 million budget. It has 87% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 92% from audiences. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four and said Martin Brest's Sense of a Woman takes Charlie and the Colonel and places them in a combination of two reliable genres, the coming-of-age formula in which an older man teaches a younger one the ropes. It's crossed here with a prep school movie from uh, separate place to If, Taps, Dead Poet Society, True Colors, has always involved a misfit who learns to stand up for what he believes in. Slade is played by Al Pacino in one of his best and riskiest performances. Risky because at first the character is so abrasive we can hardly stand him, and only gradually do we begin to understand how he works and why he is as miserable as he seems. By the end of Central Woman, we have arrived at the usual conclusion of the coming-of-age movie and the usual conclusion of the prep school movie, but rarely have they been taken there with so much intelligence and skill. Sure. Um, I want to talk about the Al Pacino thing for, for a second here. Obviously, as we mentioned, he won Best Actor for this um, and had been nominated many times before. Um, I should probably pull up what his other nominations were for. but They're uh, so weird. Like, some of them make I'm so much sense. Some of them make so much sense, and you're like, oh, of course, The Godfathers. And, sure, you know, sure, sure. But then it's also, like, some movies you've never heard of and or Dick Tracy. And obviously, his nomination <laughs> for Dick Tracy is a is a Wait, triumph. he was Academy Award nominated for Dick Tracy? For Dick yeah, Tracy. Actually, no. now I realize Dick Tracy is one of the ten things that I have <laughs> objectivity about. So oh let me just walk you through the nominations that Al Pacino has. 73 is nominated for The Godfather. 74 is nominated for Serpico. 75 is nominated for Godfather Part 2. 76, Dog Day Afternoon. Like this is this is literally four mm-hmm. years in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, then 80 and Justice for All. 91, Dick Tracy. 93, Glengarry, Glen Ross, and Scent of a Woman. So he was nominated in the same year. And I think we talked about it on our Glengarry. I would argue. I would probably have given it to him for that over this, but we can talk about that. And then obviously he was nominated in 2020 for the Irishman. So he's got a lot of nominations under his belt um, and a lot of big movies, like even putting aside all the Oscar nominations he had, like he was a giant movie star um, and he was uh, a somewhat atypical movie star in a lot of ways. People talk a lot about how, you know, him getting the role in Godfather was not, you know, what the studio wanted and this, that and whatever, but Al Pacino was, is a huge star and it's not to say that he didn't deserve his academy award he does you know um i'm not sure that this necessarily i don't know it's just so it's as as you said emily like it isn't as scenery chewing as you think it is but when it is it's at like fucking 100 like those mm-hmm. those moments where you're just like okay i you know so i don't i don't know i loved this the way you didn't like the scenery chewing moments no well this is so here here's my bigger question to you Rochelle is that as an actor i'm curious as to sort of how you view this performance right like it seems as though every actor dreams of having not a role like this, but you know what I'm saying. Like the, I know what the, you mean. So, you know what I mean. And and yeah. so how does what is this? How does that feel to you as an actor? Yeah, I love. I I I love. He's um. I mean, he's a he's a master of of melodrama, right? Like it's yes. and 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 that has its place 
And I think that if you in isolation, like I totally agree with what you were both saying and to Emily's, you know, um, originating the point about, you know, that this memory, this movie is remembered um, in a different way. And, and, and definitely, you know, if you like, you know, how many of us walked around, I mean, you and I obviously, um, <laughs> Philip, because it was so, you know, formative for us. Like, sure. I mean, I've been walking around for a long time, you know, if I was, you know, 20 years younger, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. You know, I'm too old, I'm too tired, I'm too fucking blind. And then him, and then, you know, I'm in the dark here. Like, yeah. these are, you know, everyone I know walked around doing that, right? And so, like, that is the thing that survives. And then, of course, it grows in our memory into this sort of caricature. And then that caricature paints our memory or some people's memories of, like, or the collective cultural memory of the whole performance. Um but I actually feel like, it's just my opinion, but like, I think he earns it in those moments. And I also think that what other choice would you make that would work? Like those sure. moments that he, he chooses those moments. And yes, it's in the script and there's, you can hear the crescendo in the writing, right? You can like that, that, that certainly, but there's still a million other ways to deliver the the climax monologue of a scene, right? Or of a film, or there's a million ways. And he really leans into it from a place of, like, he, he earns it. Like, I didn't, he's such a brilliant actor. And so at no point, and I've seen the movie so many times, and I watched it, you know, I watched those scenes twice in preparation for this because I wanted to be sure that I was right. And I was like, no, there's never a moment where I see him real, he's acting you know, he's acting is, but it's like a real performance. He's trying to be authentic. He's really telling, it's really his truth. And then he makes it. And then he's like, and here, here, I'm going to yell and spittle. And I never felt like here's my, I never saw Al Pacino go, here's my moment. Mm -hmm. He really works himself up to it, honestly. And every, there's not an untruthful beat in it for me. So I, I thought that those were, I loved those parts. I thought they were awesome. And I love seeing someone go for it in that way it is that kind of movie oh, yeah that's that's I am. yeah please go on this way. i want to i actually want to ask you a different question i think is related to this i'm i'm always curious about and this is not a conversation anyone was having in 1992 but i'm always curious about the idea of actors who don't have uh disabled bodies playing disabled characters um i'm of several like i'm i i as a writer feel mm -hmm. like i can if i put in the work i should be able to write about different human experiences mm -hmm. as long as i'm not like treating them like fetishistically basically um i uh and yet i sort of sit here and i'm like well i don't think cis people should play trans people blah 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 and like i'm wondering sort of how you think about that as an actor, how you draw that line, how you you think about those questions as someone who's going out and trying to get roles and things like that. I do, the one thing I, I am like just sort of, I don't want to say offended by, but the one thing I think is a problem is like the Academy sees Al Pacino play a blind man and they're like, well, of course, that's immediately Oscar worthy. I think he's good in this movie. I don't know if I would have given him the Oscar. I think a nomination is perfectly fine, but it's definitely like, you're playing a disabled character. That's a shot at an Oscar nomination, buddy. So I'm I'm curious, like, as to your thoughts about that as a larger practice, and then just like the industry adulation around that as an automatic sort of awards contention thing. Yeah, uh, two thoughts, no no answers. Um, the first is that um, 
in terms of like being Academy Award nominated, I, I have no trouble believing that there were people who thought, you know, oh, he did such a brilliant job playing, you know, this playing a character with this disability and he's not actually disabled in the, in this way and he's fully able-bodied in every way and uh, bravo. Um, and do I think that's problematic? Yeah. Uh, I also think that there are, I think that there's a performance that's a piece of the performance and it is a defining element of the character on paper. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's also a performance there that isn't about that. It's what his character is about. It's what the script is about. But as an actor, I fully, I fully believed that he was playing a million choices more than that in terms of like each each scene and and the story with charlie and his feelings about things and i believed there was a backstory and i was thinking about you know ptsd and um so i i really do think that it was like it was such a fully formed character and it it felt to me and i don't want to give him credit that i don't know we should give him because i don't know his i don't know what his process was but it didn't feel to me like he was like i'm gonna focus on I'm a sighted person playing a blind person. It didn't feel like, yeah. it felt like he was playing a full character. Um, as for whether or not he should have been playing it in the first place, I couldn't possibly know. I, I, I don't even have, I certainly don't have a position and I'm not even sure I have an opinion. Um, yeah. differ- differentiating there from like, you know, position is something where you're actually informed enough to have a position and an opinion being <laughs> just what you think about when you're on the toilet. Like, I don't, I don't know what my opinion is because I, vacillate i i do as an actor i think that there's a full scope a full range inside of each actor and i i want everyone to be able i want every artist no matter who they are i want every artist to be able to do their art to their to the full boundaries of their range and then push beyond and Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know what what gives me the authority to you know um say what those boundaries are um what I what I do feel uh, a lot because um, you know I'm a cis person, but um, I mean I don't know what I am sexual orientation wise. I'm I'm currently identifying as queer because that feels like the most appropriate word. But I'm also in a committed heterosexual relationship to a cis man with two children, right? So I have like imposter syndrome around my queerness. So mm-hmm. you know my own sort of thoughts around that make it really difficult for me to go you know, straight people shouldn't play queer people. Like I don't feel comfortable sort of in that realm. What I do think is we don't let people, we don't let, we don't let underrepresented and marginalized people tell their own stories. And that's a problem. So for now, maybe I have an opinion for now, for now, I think I'm, I think, I think it's problematic. And maybe there's a world in the future where we have let enough marginalized and underrepresented people tell their own stories. And yeah. there's equity in the storytelling, in who's writing the stories about these people, who's playing these people, who are the people who are controlling the narrative. And then maybe people control their own narrative for long enough that then we're all comfortable with people then pushing the boundaries on who gets to participate in that narrative. That's as close yeah. as I can get to an opinion. And this is like really a tangent, but I do feel like queer identities are different because oftentimes when you are queer, you use art to figure out who you are. Mm. So I try to not police that so much. Mm -hmm. I try to be more like retroactively like, okay, well, you wrote a thing with two lesbians in it and it was super gross and it was very male gazy. So that was like a fetishistic thing you did as opposed to like, you know, maybe like when the Wachowskis did Bound, they were clearly working some shit out and like- 
I want to leave space for that sort of thing. And like, right. I think, I think that, that policing these questions and saying there's an easy answer is always a problem because there's not an easy answer. And it is always worth having a longer conversation and arguing about it and saying, you know, outside of, you know, things like blackface, yellowface, et cetera, are wrong and we right. should not do those. There's no easy answer to should a straight person play a queer person because often they're probably like working through some stuff in their own brain and being in that role will change them and challenge them in ways that they maybe haven't even thought about. Anyway, that was a tangent. No, I think, wait, 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 hold on. Can, can I, can we, can we just pause, can we just pause for a second? Um, uh, uh, Just stay on it. And also just like stay in the pause for a second. Cause I think that what you said is so unbelievably valuable just from my personal opinion. I think it's so valuable. And I think there's probably a lot of people who needed that to be said and who needed that nuance, that differentiation um, for that to be named because the idea that people are working through things in their art mm -hmm. and that we need to factor that into the conversation about who gets to do what is so important. And I just want to name like, you know, I wasn't quote unquote out until like, I don't know, a couple of like a couple within the last few years. I mean, my friends mm -hmm. and family always knew, right? The people closest to me always knew I wasn't straight. But I never declared as anything. And in fact, when I did start declaring, I declared as bisexual because uh, because of all, it doesn't matter. This isn't a podcast about me discovering my sexual orientation, but I, I just did. It is now. And then it is now. It is now. But I but I did, you know, get to a place where in, you know, therapy and exploration and the conversation, whatever. And then I was like, oh, queer actually fits better. That's 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 more of who I am. And if I had been offered way back when, and I was starting out in my career in my 20s, when I, when I identified as straight or didn't identify as anything but was assumed straight, um, would I have been able, if we were having this conversation that, you know, only queer people can play queer people, would I have been able to play a queer person? No, probably wouldn't have thrown my hat in the ring. And yet that would have been a really valuable experience for me because I probably would have figured some shit out sooner. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, so I don't know. So I don't know, but I just, for anyone who's listening who like, wants to be seen in that way i think what you said was important thank you I, that's it i do want to that's it like i'm the last word no, sure, sure, sure. we it. solved it we figured it <laughs> we out fixed it. no one Yay! has any questions ever again yeah i do want to piggyback on this though because i do think and this comes back to sort of a, an earlier question to some degree rochelle for you but yeah. up to both of you obviously but there is this academy problem i would say and it even happened this past year of of the idea of quote unquote how hard a person is acting the level of difficulty in a performance right mm -hmm. which is obviously entirely subjective in terms of viewing but in terms of actually doing the performance itself there is a part of me that feels like some of it is i don't want to say easier but i do feel like you know, if you look at a performance, let's just say Brendan Fraser's performance this year in The Whale, for instance, which is a performance that feels like the Academy looked at and was like, on its face, this feels like a more challenging thing to do than, I don't know, Colin Farrell's performance in Banshees of Inner Shuring, which all of this right. is absurd to compare these things, but I wanted to kind of hone in on it just because I feel like Al Pacino's win in this movie 
feels kind of like one of those things that people point to and say, like, look at what he's doing here. I, I guess my question to you is, as an actor, there is there are performances as for me anyway, that are more subtle, that are more internalized, that are much harder to get to on an emotional level as an actor than putting on, forgive me, but putting on a fat suit. Do you know what I'm saying? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And I think that that speaks to, um, you know, there is, yeah, it it makes me think of, you know, um, and there was so much misogyny involved in it, but like the conversation around, you know, Charlize Theron and monster, right. And people going, Oh, it's so brave. Like right. that somehow it was harder, harder to do because she's beautiful and it was so brave for her to allow herself to look like that. Right. Which is like, has so much in it. I could vomit. Right. That's, um, that's, yeah. A 10 right. hour podcast. In terms yeah, of yeah, yeah, that yeah, 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 exactly. But, um, but, but, but so, so we all get that. Um, but the thing that I, that kind of got me in when you were talking was the word harder. Right. Yes. And I, and I think like, that's an interesting question is the, is the are the awards for acting which are so arbitrary anyway right in terms of like personal taste and whatever um hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Is that, the ge- is that the measurement, right? Like, what if an actor gives a brilliant performance that is huge and melodramatic and and also brilliant right and that's and that's actually easier for them sure. than a really subtle nuanced performance right and the subtle nuanced performance that might be better that you think is better sure. that you think should win the academy award what if that is exactly the what if that's exactly right for that actor and that's where they feel most comfortable and that's a performance that you know may have been challenging the way that all great performances i'm sure challenge actors and they challenge themselves but like maybe that's less that's more comfortable for that actor than like doing some other role so i don't know like do we even does that even do we get to factor that in like what if you give a great performance that's oscar worthy and it came easily do you not deserve the award we don't even talk about i don't know performances right like great this is a great example which is just like a a thing where you know listen we could we could we could grind axes about the academy's choices and performances all day long but i think that specifically to this kind of corridor of best actor best actress it is always dramatic performances it is always relatively grounded in terrestrial right you're you're very infrequently seeing things in Uh fantasy sci-fi comedy really anything that breaks outside that i Um, love that we're having this conversation just after michelle yo won (laughs) 
but I, you know, great. I, you, I love that movie. And I love that performance. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily, but again, by and large, right. By and large, these, up the, until we are point, in situations yeah. where, um, you know, the term Oscar bait is a, a thing. It's a thing because people know that if I stick to this corridor, I'm most likely, I have a better shot at a nomination right. or a better shot at an Oscar. That's a problem. It does feel like hard factors into that. It does feel like the reason why people don't get nominated yes. for comedic performances is people don't think it's as hard for some reason. Like they just, oh, they go, that can't be as challenging. I am like, I am thinking about this through the lens of the recent Oscars, where it, it is like this very neat divide where Brendan Fraser and Jamie Lee Curtis gave traditional Oscar performances in the sense that they both glammed down. They, you know, both wore fat suits or whatever. And like this, so they were doing the thing where they changed themselves. Yep. And Kehi Kwan and Michelle Yeoh are just giving like very effortless very nuanced very moving performances but also that are very funny that are like whole like like all of the exposition that kehu kwan has to deliver in that movie and it's so done so well just all like very um nuts and bolts things that actors have to do and making it look easy and i'm fascinated by sort of that it does feel like there is this this dichotomy within the academy where they are easily swayed by, you know, something like an actor putting on a fat suit. And yet sometimes they're just very like drawn to something that just looks effortless. And it does feel to me in recent years, that effortless performance of stuff that maybe should be hard has been getting recognized a little bit more. I think, Um, I think what you're tapping into is the fact that the complexion literally and figuratively of the Academy is changing. And we're seeing this kind of, Mm push and pull that's existing between the old guard and the new guard a little bit which is good right we we want to see that breadth of of things be nominated and and awarded um but i agree with you that this past year does feel like a real kind of you're seeing the two sides of the coin very clearly and none of them played real people you know none of them like like austin butler i i would have voted for austin butler for elvis but he he like didn't win you know so um it's interesting i and I, i think it also speaks to the other people that were up for the role of Frank Slade, I guess apparently Pacino turned down the role originally. They went to Nicholson, they went to Harrison Ford, they went to Dustin Hoffman, Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci's performance would have been very oh interesting. Um, I, and and again, on his agent's advice, Pacino reluctantly accepts the part um, and later gives his agent a lot of credit for it. But I do think that those names also speak to how this role was being perceived by Hollywood as well, right? The people that were that were being offered this movie, um, this particular role, I think they saw it as an opportunity at, you know, big Oscar potential, right? Like all these guys. Right, like it's a of, showcase. You know, it's a yes, showcase for yes. what you can do. Right. It's right. a container made just for you. Yes, <laughs> to, exactly. To show everyone what you can no, do. No, totally. And, you know, uh, in terms of other people um, that were up for the Charlie role that obviously ultimately went to Chris O'Donnell, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio auditioned for the role, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, ben, Brendan Fraser, uh, the usual suspects you, you would imagine. It is interesting that Chris O'Donnell gets this role. I think part of it is because he wasn't, really a name not that any of these people really were at the time but still i just think it's interesting that kind of fresh faced as you said emily he's very he's got these big blue eyes and he's very kind of um he feels you know like a very atypical white bread 
guy. Um, yeah. Which I think. Right. Like I believed he was a virgin when he said he was. <laughs> <laughs> one, one name, one yes. name on the list of people on Wikipedia who mm-hmm. auditioned for Charlie. So who knows if this is, is Chris yeah. Rock and like, sure. I kind of think I know. that would have worked. Like the, there's an underlying tension of this movie, which is which is class commentary, yep. and yet the movie doesn't really know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And that is a thing you could solve through casting. Chris O'Donnell does not read as someone who comes from a lower class background at all. And like in in the in the U.S., you know, if you just if you differ the situation where it's obviously like I'm trying to think of a like a, a white actor who reads, you know, as as would have read as lower class at that time. And of course, I can't think of that because well, i'm yeah it is it is this yeah. thing where like chris o'donnell feels like a prep school boy and he's supposed to not be playing a prep school yeah. boy and like you need you need to contrast with with pacino a little bit more and i think that that is uh well it's the, yeah. the the ben affleck matt damon cole hauser all three of them obviously are in goodwill hunting and i think that you know they all do a ben affleck good. with full massachusetts accent is <laughs> see <laughs> yeah full boston uh, yeah, it, but it's, I it's I, just, yeah. I love the element of Chris, I love the idea of Chris Rock, uh, both because of the the you know co- implicit commentary on America's racial and class dynamics, but also because I think he'd like find a little bit more of the humor. Chris O'Donnell just doesn't, and it just kind of lays flat a little bit. I don't want to. He's so earnest. Yeah. He's yeah. very <laughs> earnest, and and I would argue, you know, Chris O'Donnell, he's just not a guy that I really particular like i like him in this movie uh it's kind of the only thing that i can really speak of that i'm like really into from him i find him a little bland but no no there's one moment i'll remind you one moment one moment there's a moment in batman he plays robin Uh and uh at one moment forever yeah no i think it was batman forever uh uh, and alicia silverstone who plays i think batgirl right Uh uh rings the doorbell and chris o'donnell opens the door (laughs) and looks at her and says please be looking for me <laughs> sure in, in a way that is so charming i don't remember anything else about the movie except that, yeah, that this is a, my when yeah. when i hear chris o'donnell this is the one thing that i think of and the only reason i bring it up that i remember that is that like it is that sort of like virginal hapless innocent i have no life experience do you know what i mean so it feels he does like radiate that yes yeah and so it feels like like it would have been better for them to lean into the class stuff and much more interesting yeah but it feels like instead what they leaned into was in addition to just leaning into whiteness it feels like what they um leaned into was this like this guy who like literally experience versus inexperience like the guy who's been at war mm-hmm Versus the guy who's has seen and done nothing, like I has think, no yeah. is so naive. Yeah. yeah, I think Chris O'Donnell should have broken through in like 2006, so he could have just played a long string of himbos. Because I feel like that would have been <laughs> he would have been yes. so good at that. Well, yeah. the, the moment I think you're referring to, Emily, is his arc on Grey's Anatomy was the was the time when he kind of everyone was like, oh wait a second, Chris O'Donnell, hot. Where did he go? Why hasn't he been in more stuff? And then he signed on to 12 years of NCIS Los Angeles and uh, probably has like five houses. So I don't know. Yeah, he's not sorry. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, you, just, you just gotta, you just gotta but it, it is join a wildly successful TV show. Yeah. He, he definitely, I, yeah. He's, he's an interesting guy. He could have had a, perhaps maybe a slightly more interesting career, but you know. Whatever. Yeah. I, I do want to say, I want to go back to the, yes. um, I don't know if 
where we were headed, but I want to, I don't remember, but I, I want to take us back to the conversation about, you know, the evolution of appreciating performances and the way yes, and what we appreciate sure. them for in terms of subtlety, because, because in your um, frame, he's sitting behind you, Emily, yes. um, that no one talks about Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie. They, I understand that at the time he wasn't Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? I get that. But also like, we talk about people all the time who are, you know, new in a film, who we discover mm -hmm. talent. And it feels like even though, even when he became Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, I like, I've not talked about so much that I forgot that he was in it. Like, I didn't forget. I just remember going back to watch it and be like, oh yeah, fuck. And, and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman plays George mm -hmm. and he's so good in it. He's, he's tremendous in this movie. He's, he's tremendous. Really he's so subtle. He's yeah. heartbreakingly real. Like, I just want to give a little shout out. So the work that Philip Seymour Hoffman took a character who is not fully fleshed out on the page, who really just serves a purpose, right? To be like, this is the privileged guy who's going to hide behind daddy and whatever. And he plays it with so much new, like, it, he's so nuanced and idiosyncratic and all the, all the words. Yep. Um, yep. It's just such a great performance. I just want to call it out. Now I'm trying to imagine a world where Chris O'Donnell and Philip Seymour Hoffman flipped roles. And I think I like this movie a little bit better. <laughs> I, like, yeah. yeah. He's right. It is interesting. Right. This is, Fair. this is the performance that gets him noticed for lack of a better way yeah. of putting it. Right. Like it's, it certainly puts him on the map. It's a, it's, you know, he's, he's got a fair amount of screen time. Um, and then, I didn't remember him popping up um, until Nobody's Fool, which is two years later, the Paul Newman film, which I love. And he's really, he plays a cop in that and he's a thankless role. But, you know, 96 is obviously Heart Eight, then it's Twister, Boogie Nights, and we're, we're off to the races at that point. But it is interesting to see him in this. He talks, I mean, he's been interviewed about it a little bit and how like, you know, this was this was the role that kind of you know, as I said, put him on the map. He talked about auditioning for the role five times before he was cast. Um, and that he, you know, cites this film as obviously the film that, that, that started his career. But I do think to you, to both of your points, there is a, there's a nuance to what he's doing, but he's also kind of making the role bigger too, right? Like yeah. the way that he's, the way he, perf the way he calls him Chaz all the time, yes. um, the, the way that he sort of plays him and the, and the way you see the arc of his power diminish over the course of the film of how sort of he starts from this place of being, you know, super popular, what have you. And then even just through phone calls, we're like, just listening. I was to just going to say that. Do you know how hard that is to line. do? Yeah. And you're seeing how it's slipping away from him and Charlie's not tuning into that um it's it, it is it's it's great he's great in it. when when i was texting you angrily phil last yes, night the indeed. one thing i said i liked was psh i think he's giving he's hey. giving kind of a brilliant performance here and like a, again and just every little choice he makes in line reading and physicality is just like adding up and he adding up to a full person and you really see why this guy became you know one one of the most acclaimed actors of his generation. Absolutely. He's he's just got so many interesting ideas for what should be kind of a nothing character. I, you know, I, I want to give another shout out to somebody as well who, you know, um, a staple character actor who often is James Rebhorn, who mm -hmm. plays the the guy who's running the, the task Trask, I guess is, is Trask. his name. Yeah. Um, who's running the school. Um, I, I, the reason I want to kind of give this a shout out is because again, like he's played this type of role. He played this type of role. My, 
Yes, go ahead. This is the rare movie I didn't watch with my wife, and she came in at the very end and said, I didn't know James Rebhorn was in this movie, but I knew James Rebhorn was in this movie. <laughs> go ahead. But it's true. Like, that's the thing. Like, this was the type of role, and I, I would argue probably one of the kind of things that sent him on a trajectory for the next 15 to 20 years of doing this type of role. But again, he's really good in it. I could mm -hmm. totally have seen him playing the father in Dead Poets Society, for instance. Yeah, um, oh, totally. Right? Like, you could absolutely see him playing that type of, of just a stern father role. I love him in, you know, The Game, for instance, which is a movie that, you know, not a lot of people love, oh, but yeah. he's really great in it. Like, he's a guy who... This was the first thing I noticed him in for sure when I was a kid. And whenever he pops up since, I'm like, I just love that guy. He's just, he's always really, really good. So I just wanted to give him a shout out. He is, and he resists a very easy, uh, you know, there's, there's like, there's, there's, there's pitfalls in, in the, you sure. know, there's, in the, there's cracks in the pavement to fall into and trip over um, and in that role. And he doesn't, like, it isn't mustache twirly. Right. And it, it really yeah. could be because if there's a if there's a villain in this movie, it isn't Colonel Slade, right? It isn't Frank Slade, and so if there's a villain in this movie, it's it's him. And yes. and I don't really feel like there's a villain in this movie, like protagonist and antagonist. But like, yes, yes. he's not a he's not a bad guy. He's no. yeah. It's his, a, again, his ego it's is is bruised, and he doesn't know how to process that essentially is kind of yeah which feels totally appropriate to you know the like to you know the like the the, the challenges of manhood and exactly the way the movie is trying to frame it right this like becoming a man and what kind of a man are you going to be and it's like fits right into that right like who what are you know oh your ego is bruised and for that you have to you know over how far are you gonna go you're gonna ruin a kid's life because your car you know your car mm -hmm. because yeah. someone dropped paint on your midlife crisis <laughs> like yeah you know it's it's it is interesting i i mean i sort of there's a couple sort of i don't i don't know if the right word is set pieces but there are certainly mm -hmm. kind of big things that i wanted to kind of talk about in the course of this film the, the the biggest one ultimately sort of early on in the film is uh or midway in the film i guess is the thanksgiving dinner um basically mm. frank crashes his family's thanksgiving dinner um and bradley uh whitford gives one of his early prick performances all hail all hail, all hail bradley <laughs> whitford uh before uh obviously this is i think this is what about a year or so before he appears on er um for love's labor lost and then subsequently gets the west wing a few years after that but mm -hmm. um the guy plays a, a dick really well um I'm curious, what are our thoughts on the Thanksgiving scene? Do we have thoughts? Emily? Yeah, Emily? <laughs> I mean, I like, the thing is I need to like do a larger holistic feel thing about this movie. I like, I didn't like that scene. I don't think it was good. I didn't think, I didn't have, like, I think it's, uh, it's certainly well acted. Um, I just didn't buy the writing, you know, and I think, I think a lot of my problem with this movie is is Martin Brest. I don't think he's a... I've liked movies of his. I don't think he's a bad director. I think he films this movie indifferently, and this movie needs a take, and he doesn't have one, and that kind of lets the movie down throughout. Uh, you know, I don't know who, who I'd rather have direct this. If someone was going to make this today, I kind of want it to be Steven Soderbergh. I don't know why, but I just feel like he'd have no, a sense... you don't want it to be Aaron Soderbergh. Oh. 
Oh no, listen. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. I I I might hate it, but I'd watch it. Like no, but yeah, I I think I think and that's that's the thing is like the 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 Thanksgiving dinner thing is just sort of filmed through blank coverage and oh, yeah. it's like there's totally not agree. like there's not like a POV on that scene, which is kind of what I need. And it just like it ends up being sort of bland. It doesn't have a build in a way that I think I'd want it to. I think Breast handles certain other set pieces better, but the Thanksgiving scene kind of just like bounced off me. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I didn't know whose point of view we were in, and the minute the minute you don't know whose point of view you're in, you don't know why it's there, and it's like why why I don't know why this scene exists. I don't know what I'm supposed to right. I don't know what lens I'm looking through. Um, Yeah, it just felt it felt awkward. It's that it was there. It's, What's it it's doing a there? weird scene for sure. It's it's a very kind of like joke heavy scene, quote unquote joke heavy scene. Right. But it's the scene that I felt, and I, I, I'm curious what you guys think of this. But it, it was kind of the moment, and I think what you're saying is true, Emily. That like Martin Brest feels a little bit like he's been that basically Al Pacino is running this set, mm-hmm. and. Which is probably the case. I, I don't say that in a negative fashion, but like this feels a little bit like an actor that's running roughshod a little bit over a director. Like you really do feel as though right. the the dials are not in the director's hands; they're more in this actor's hands. One has to ask then who was in the editing room because it feels sure. like if you have you know this movie being two hours and forty minutes long, right? <laughs> yes. That people going this is not a movie that needs to be two hours and 40 minutes. You haven't earned that running time in this film. Right. Um, What can we cut? Feels like I can't think of anyone. I mean, the three of us here figured it out. None of us are, you know, none of us are are editors. Right. And, um, and I certainly haven't directed anything or, or written a screenplay, but I I could be standing in the room. I'd be like, the dinner scene can go (laughs) like, that seems like a no brainer. Right. Like, Nothing evolves. Yeah. No one changes. It doesn't give you information that you need to take anywhere. Um, like you could literally just, you wouldn't have to even add ADR on the back of someone's head to fill in missing information. You could literally just cut it and never think about it again. And the movie would be the same. It tells you fine. And just it a bit tells shorter. You, so why is it there? It tells you mostly things you already know, which is that right. his family doesn't like him much. And that the thing, asshole. the one, the yeah. one piece of information you need is that he was, you know, juggling grenades and that's why he's blind. And it's like we learned the backstory okay, of, of I could have gotten right, that. but you I would argue yeah. you don't even need that either. Exactly. You could get that in a different fashion, or it could just be like a thing where he's blind and you know it happened to him midway through life, as opposed to he was born that way, because he was in the military. And it's like this interesting character conundrum. This movie doesn't leave anything to your imagination. And like that, yeah. Can right. can I defend it just that would slightly? be interesting actually if we didn't know. But I'm anyway, gonna go just yeah. I'm gonna defend this just slightly. I don't disagree with what you guys are saying, but this is more devil's advocate than anything. But it's the first time we see Frank defend Charlie um and actually come to his, you know, quote unquote honor, whatever you want to call that, um, with the Bradley Whitford uh entanglement. Um but to to all to both of your points, and I agree, it's a little bit of backstory, it's a little bit of of you know learning character dynamics of how he is with his family even though we've gleaned that from the uh the niece um dynamics so like we kind of get it i agree we could pull it i'll just say this um i'm sure it played like gangbusters (laughs) in the theater i'm sure it got a lot of laughs i'm sure it was a bit of a jolt at you know the hour point of this film or 45 minute point in this film you kind of needed that um 
all that being said, I'd say that's one of the the set pieces. Um, the other one is the tango scene, um, which apparently they they rehearsed for like three weeks, which I'm just like, that's insane, but sure. Um, just in the sense that like, it's a nice scene, but like, I'm not sure that I would look at it as sort of a dancing virtuoso of, of acting, but sure. Um, it's the first time I heard that tango song and i feel like i've heard it every time since now like if there's a tango scene that (laughs) is the song that's the piece of music (laughs) which sure just a choice um and i do think it's a fun scene i think that that and the ferrari scene to me are really sort of about and this movie by and large is about joie de vivre it's about you know embracing the, the the pleasures in life and this man trying to you know um reinvigorate and re-embrace those pleasures in life and i think that those two sequences are well directed visually i think are are visually arresting to watch maybe more so the ferrari scene i love you know the 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 pan across the alleyways as the car is going by like there's just some really nice visual elements to that stuff and i think those two scenes to me anyway symbolize what i do love about the film which is that it's about loving life and trying to find the joys in life and that sort of stuff that that to me as you know not deep as that might very well be that's sort of what i like about it i i do i do love the tango scene i think it works i think it works on its own terms i think it's kind of a lovely little short film dropped in the middle of this movie i don't know what it's supposed to tell me about charlie but yeah. whatever like i he think that's a pretty girl and she i guess we're supposed cute. to i guess we're supposed to understand that he can appreciate and gabrielle anwar being attractive which okay um, I feel like the Ferrari scene kind of repeats it. I just feel like that that was when I that was when I turned on the movie was the Ferrari scene was when really? I was like this why? this movie fucking sucks. Why? What's why? It's trite bullshit, Phil. It's trite bullshit. It's, I also I, I didn't like the Ferrari scene the second time around. But, sorry, what was that, Rachel? No, I also didn't like the Ferrari scene the second time around. Why? Or the eighth time around, or however many times I've seen this movie. Um, for the reasons I think that Emily's stating uh, that it's that it's a that it's repetitive, uh, that it's a redundant moment, it's repetitive, and um, I feel like I interrupted somebody though when I'm saying the same thing they were. Emily, did I interrupt you? Oh, you're fine. Okay. I, I uh, yeah. I'll, okay. I mean, listen. I and it and it and it and it and it, it had me suspending. It asked me to. It was asking me to suspend too much disbelief, which is unnecessary in a movie that isn't science fiction. Yeah, right like that he can go yeah. that fast that he's going to make those turns that he's going to be able to not hit anything when the alleyway he's turning down is so narrow and has a parked car in it and all the things that are happening that he's going to be able to pull up to the curb without so much as scratching the rims like just the the sheer logistics of it asked me to suspend disbelief in a way that I didn't think was appropriate for the genre that we were in it's also like the tango scene i think gets at something sort of elemental in human interaction the ferrari scene is like it's fun to drive a car really fast but (laughs) the fact that that's the thing that makes him now like actively suicidal just feels empty to me if you flip those two scenes i might like them better the tango is so good because it is about this thing that is rapidly slipping away from Frank just because he's aging, not because he's blind, not because he's any of these, he's getting older. There's only so long he can dance with a beautiful woman and have her appreciate his dancing skills. And you can feel like the mortality and melancholy dripping off that scene in a way the rest of this movie needs and doesn't have. And the Ferrari scene is kind of a cheap stunt. It just, yeah, it just doesn't work. 
I'm not just just to be abundantly clear. I'm not saying you guys are wrong. Like intellectually, I agree with you. I'm going to get fired from this podcast like the fired. second week. <laughs> First of all, there is no firing you from No, this I podcast. keep getting invited back for disagreeing with them all the time. Disagreeing with It's Phil true. Yeah, I mean time. all the time. <laughs> I well no, I intellectually I agree with you guys, right? Like intellectually you could lift that scene, it would pull probably, you know, 7 minutes or however long it is out of the movie. Um I don't disagree with you guys. Like my brain agrees with you. My heart, unfortunately, is I watch it and it makes me happy. So I don't but know. You what found else it entertaining. That has value. So like, you know what I mean? Like, that's entertainment. So exactly. So like, I, I agree with you guys. I really do. Like, I, I think that what you're saying, Emily, about his mortality and about his mental state and what his emotional state, all that sort of stuff, is much clearer distilled in the tango scene um and that's the, that's the movie right like if there's a yeah. scene that people are going to remember from the movie it's probably the tango scene these are also the two scenes where martin breft kind of comes to life they're the yes. two scenes he shoots in a way that is like and you know the ferrari scene is he, he directed beverly hills cop so he knows how to yes, do and um, sure. midnight run so he knows how to do these kind of comedic action beats um and the tango scene is just like it is shot quite well for a dance scene particularly in the 90s when nobody could figure out how to shoot dance scenes so like it's uh yeah it's it like i those are the two scenes where you feel his directorial hand sort of slip in um as opposed like the big fight between charlie and frank when when frank's in his 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 dress uniform is Mm -hmm. that's another scene where the direction becomes kind of anonymous and it, it hurts the film as a whole i think I agree. I mean, that, that scene, because I, I was just going to bring that scene up, feels like ultimately sort of the emotional climax of the film, obviously, where Charlie essentially stops Frank from from ending his, his own life. Um, I feel like the acting is and the performances in that scene, I think, are quite strong. I actually really do hand mm-hmm. it to Chris O'Donnell going toe-to-toe with Al Pacino in mm-hmm. some some big Oscar clip energy scene is not an easy task and i think he rises to the occasion um but to your point emily and i agree with you the the blocking is strange like the geography of the way that it's actually shot is a little strange especially when like it's really kind of close to camera and pacino it's it's all kind of i don't know if it's intentionally messy maybe it is but it's it's a little bit odd in terms of the blocking and but it is what it is but i I think it's i I think yeah sorry go ahead Oh, I was going to say, it is what it is. And also, I think that, like, it does speak to a large, it does, it does, it's a great example of that sort of larger problem of, like, whose point of view and, and who, and who, who are we, who is this movie for? And by that, I don't mean audience wise. I mean, like, in terms of, you know, as a, as a director, like, in terms of serving your own vision and you have a very specific point of view and you have a vision versus, like, this big movie star actor who wants to be featured in a certain way or who you think you're supposed to feature in a certain way. It does feel like those things are at odds, particularly in that framing, because that scene where... um you know, where he where he's le- like what you're saying, like that last end of the scene, the blocking where he's leaning over him and Chris O'Donnell's bent backwards over the, you know, the dresser, or the bureau, whatever it yeah. is. And um, and Al Pacino's leaning on him. And I, I it was one of the things that jarred me in that scene was I was like, oh, this is interesting. Al Pacino's close up camera wise is at least it wasn't for me it didn't feel like geographically didn't feel like it was positioned to be it wasn't Chris O'Donnell's point of view. It was this. Yeah third camera because it was this third anonymous person in the room point of view over his shoulder and i and it was like it was it felt like the director was going and now instead of being chris o'donnell watching colonel Mm -hmm. slade 
say all these things and how that might impact you. Now we're going to watch Al Pacino do the thing. We're going to stand behind Chris O'Donnell so we can all get a really good point of view. Like what is the best way to feature Al Pacino as opposed to whose point of view is the camera and where should we put it as a result? And it really did feel outside. Again, I felt, I felt sort of like cinematically, I, I, I I got lost in that moment in a bad way. I was like, I I was just, I was disoriented in terms of who and what I was supposed to be caring about. I'm going to do a thing that I think every review at the time did. So it's kind of cliche. I'm going to compare this movie to E.T., the extraterrestrial. Um, and uh, Are you going to hate on E.T. now, too? No, no, I love E.T., <laughs> one of my favorite movies. That uh, I think that that movie is also a two-hander between two very different characters. That movie is in Elliot's point of view, knows it's in Elliot's point of view, yes. to the degree that the camera is on a child's level for most of the film. And, like... This movie, the script, as many problems as I have with the script, is clearly in Charlie's point of view. The yep. movie is in a nebulous third point of view. And the, for everything in this movie to work better, I don't think I would still, I still don't think I would quite like it. But, like, I think if it was firmly Charlie's movie, if it was yep. firmly him watching this and learning these lessons or whatever, I think it works better. And instead it's kind of a movie about Frank learning a lesson and that's where it falls apart for me. I totally agree. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we're now at the end where we have this tribunal that Emily is uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, father. It seems. (laughs) mother. Um, I'm I'm Yes. If I, Philip Seymour Hoffman was my son, I would be so proud. I'd be like, Oh, Good, good. You did a good job. You did a good job. Um, In this tribunal, there's a line that I love. Um, It's near the end when uh, Al Pacino is giving his big speech, and he turns to the the students and says, and Harry, Jimmy, and Trent, wherever you are, fuck you too. Yeah. (laughs) It's just... It's a it's a great thing because you're just sort of like it's such a throwaway and these kids I do just want to say one quick thing about these fucking kids these four brats are such like silver spoon fed white rich assholes and and effective right like we're not supposed to like them um, but they really do a good job of you're just like they're just such smarmy pricks and you're just like you're rooting against them. And, and it, that's, you spoke of this earlier, Emily, but that class distinction, you do feel it in, I think they only really have one scene where mm-hmm. Charlie is talking to the the four of them. And there really is sort of this, here's like, you're pulling for Charlie already. Cause he's surrounded by assholes and it's just a good place to start your protagonist. If we're going on only his journey, for instance, like, I think that what's interesting, Emily, that you, I, I'm not sure if this is what you were insinuating, but, if Frank was a supporting role in this movie, right? Mm-hmm. If this was if this was Charlie's movie and Frank is, you know, the best supporting actor situation, I think there might have been a, a better balance found yeah. in terms of mm-hmm. of of letting Frank be forgive this but like a garnish or a, or a you know what I mean, a flavor to the film rather than the entire film because it yes. really becomes unbalanced at that point um and then yes. he meets francis conroy um and they 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 fall in love and it's gonna be great you know what i will give the movie points for this i always love when francis conroy just pops in at the end right and you're like there she is there she is Hi. more francis conroy would watch a sequel scent of a woman <laughs> <laughs> scent of this woman <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean listen i i think that the movie ends return obviously... of the woman's scent that's the title <laughs> 
but I, I listen it's obviously get a big happy ending one of the things i do like about this about like the, the very sort of very very end of the film is that you get the impression that charlie wants to like give frank a hug or say something to sort of thank him and frank's just like fuck you i'm done like he there, there's a very kind of like curt way that frank wants to kind of end this journey together which i appreciated um you know and then, then it's over Let's rate this movie because Rochelle, I want to hear your thoughts no. on the film we're covering. No, next no, no. Oh. I get to. I have. I. I get to speak. Um, no, no. I actually. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to point out about the the final the final scene, Please. which is again Please. reading a bunch of the contemporaneous reviews. By far, the most common criticism was that it was too long. The second most common criticism was that the ending doesn't work. The second most common criticism oh. was that that you don't need to go back to the prep school. Basically, okay. that they felt like that was a problem and i actually think the prep school ending is slightly more vital to the film than some of the other stuff i don't I like that scene but i think you sure. need it for the the story sure. of the movie to work um but i i get where they're coming from it feels like putting a hat on a hat on a hat at that point and i just wonder you know if they if if they had gotten to that a half hour sooner if that would have bought the movie some goodwill in the face of critics who either were like kind of mixed on it or didn't quite like it. Um, but I, I, my criticism of this movie and the reason that I just bounce off it is first of all, I'm allergic to boarding school movies and prep school movies. So it was, it, it was, it was against me going in, but this movie ended and like the Apple TV recommended to me um, four movies that I either hate or dislike. Uh, and it was dead poet society uh, and rain man and as good as it gets, and some other movie I don't remember. But the thing that was with in, your algorithm, yeah. The thing that was in common with it's outside of Dead Poet Society, which clearly the setting. I mean, like again, Dead Poet Society for me is a near miss. I think it's I think it's got everything there. It's just some that doesn't click for me. Um, is that they are movies about people who are dealing with some sort of mental condition, um, and then the movie kind of the movie is basically about how the way to you just got to learn to overcome this and learn to love life basically this movie frank is suffering from suicidal depression throughout mm -hmm. he is in a really dark terrible place and because the movie takes us out of Charlie's point of view, where I totally buy that the lesson Charlie takes from this is you have to learn to appreciate life and you have to learn to trust the good moments and you have to learn to find something to live for. I think that works better. When Frank learns it, it viscerally offends me. It viscerally turns me off. It makes me think the movie is trite and is being tried about a thing that affects nearly everybody i know in a way that is particularly 90s oscar bait there's so many movies like this um goodwill hunting is another one i like that movie more but i think it certainly has that thing where it's like we can solve this problem in a scene because it's a movie and we have to and when we got to the ferrari scene I just turned on this movie so hard. Whereas to that point, I'd just been like, this is long and I don't really like it, but whatever. I guess as someone who has everybody in my life has some sort of mental illness, everybody in my life is dealing with this. I think there's this whole period of Hollywood film 
and maybe this is me holding a modern attitude against an older movie, which is not fair because if this movie were like transphobic, I would be like, well, that was the time. And like, but I do think there's this term that William Goldman, another great screenwriter with the last name Goldman mm-hmm. used to describe the movie uh, American Beauty of all things, which he called Hollywood horse shit, which is basically <laughs> the idea that you can have a problem solved by like the right thing happening at the right time and that will pull you out of whatever depths you're in and it's the it's because you need to end the movie but the movie sells it as this is going to solve the problem for all time i think scent of a woman is one of the most hollywood horseshit movies i've ever seen i strongly disliked it on those grounds and i never want to see it again i so zero would be your rating i'm well, not no. gonna give it a zero there's elements <laughs> of this movie i like but uh, i will say i rate i've been ranking these movies on my uh letterbox i have a 92 list this is only ahead of final analysis consenting adults and cool world for me i think it's a bad movie i want to um i i, I don't disagree with you in terms of its depiction of of mental health in terms of uh it's pat way of dealing with it which is something that hollywood um does with any number of uh complicated and heady issues that can't reasonably be dealt with in two hours um and so it kind of breezes past things um there's no question this man is suicidal and the idea that charlie could uh shake him out of said um headspace by saying uh, just tango on is obviously um, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't say otherwise. Um, I think that this movie, um, and it's, it, it's, it's slightly ironic because Bo Goldman uh, did write One Flip the Cuckoo's Nest, um, which is, you know, a, uh, a movie trying to deal head on with mental illness and, and the way that it's, it's handled in this also, country. Also fucking Melvin and Howard is very, and I right. love Melvin and Howard. Yeah, One of the great scripts to me. Yeah. I, I think that I, I don't disagree with what you're saying in terms of that and the way that it handles it. And, you know, I, I think that if I was to rewrite this movie today, um, I would remove the suicidal component from the film. Um, I, I, I know that it adds stakes and it does all the things that studios want from, you know, dialing up drama. But to your point, I, I don't think they do service to handling that um, uh, struggle that Frank is going through. And, and it was something that jumped out at me on this watch for sure. Yeah. I think I have uh, a, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just was gonna say, I think making Frank a supporting character solves a lot of these issues because yeah. then you can also, if you want to, you can also have him die through whatever means yeah. in a way that doesn't irreparably hurt the movie. I agree. And 100%. like it, 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 it needs to be a movie about Charlie learning a lesson and it just is, it's about Frank learning a lesson. And I yep. think the lesson Frank learns, it just like sweeps a bunch of stuff under the rug in a way that really irritated me. Sorry, well, Michelle. Yeah. I, no, I was going to say, oh, sorry, go ahead, Phil. I, I, just to very quickly just say that, um, you know, I, I think that when you're going after the actors that they were going after and trying to sort of turn this into this like big, they lost the, the kind of, the, they got lost for the, you know, 
the forest for the trees. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. Michelle. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I just, I, I totally agree with both of you. And I think that um, uh, something that um, really would have served this movie is to let go of, again, you know, common at the time, still common in movies um, in yeah. storytelling, right? That like, we want to make the audience feel like we tied up all the loose ends and we don't want to leave people, you know, not knowing because that's so desperately uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, especially studio movies, like being afraid of that. But again, like to the point of, you know, did we, you could lose the dinner scene and you wouldn't know how Frank became blind, but like that wouldn't matter. You don't need to know. It's all from Charlie's point of view. And if Charlie never knew how he was blind, it doesn't change anything. He just needs to, he just knows that he is. And this is what is as a result. Um, I feel the same way about the, the suicide, um, which is that like, yeah, yeah. Now I've had this great experience, this great weekend um, that, you know, I have this, I have this surrogate son now and I'm not going to kill myself, but that doesn't happen in 48 hours. Um, so, and, and also yeah. like, yeah, so, but we're going to give you a happy ending, but you don't need it. Like, the, I could have, I could have happily watched Frank, you know, Charlie is changed and Charlie wants a hug and Charlie's like all, you know, my changed my whole life in a single weekend. And Frank's like, you know, it's, how, how, that was a nice 48 hours. I got to get into the car now. Good luck. Good luck to you. You're not going to, you know, you're not, you didn't get expelled. Good, good luck. And getting yeah. in the car and driving away. And I don't even know if he goes and kills himself or not. And I certainly don't want to know that he goes home and decides he's going to play with his grandchildren. Right. <laughs> like for the first time ever. Yeah. Um, so I, I, again, like both for cutting time it solves the length of, it solves the length problem. And it, it also, um, you know, fixes some of the things that are, that are problematic. Um, and I do just want to speak to the, uh, I think that just to name it, one of the things about the movie being, you know, in the things that don't hold up because they were part of their time, um, that the movie, you know, we're calling it suicidal depression, which it was, um, but also the movie doesn't, isn't clearly isn't made in a time where we're having conversations about soldiers coming back from war with PTSD and how that changes their whole lives. And do not quote me friends and family, but I believe like PTSD didn't actually make it into the, uh, the DSM, the diagnostics and statistic manual for psychological disorders until the eighties, like possibly even like the mid to late eighties, um, somewhere. I can actually answer this question. Oh, you can. Okay. No, 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 please. Please. Yeah. So I was just so I was gonna say that that seems relevant, right? That like we, in 1992, this was not something that people were even still well versed in or knew how to deal with or address in any way, let alone cinematically in a movie like this one. Yeah, it's a PTSD is invented because Vietnam veterans coming back from Vietnam are like advocating for themselves within the veterans health system and saying this is a mental problem yes. that we've dealt with. People in the Veterans Administration were like, oh, we saw this in World War II, too. We just didn't, like, talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it starts to be classified as a disorder around the late 70s and then is officially, like, turned into a thing that is, like, put in the DSM in the 80s. Right, and there's a gap, right, in yeah. this th – them yeah. going, this is happening to us, and people going, oh, that's not a real thing, and they have to spend, yeah. like, a decade and a half, like, fighting yeah. for it to – this is real, and, and they only gets recognized in the 80s. And then it's increasingly just like, well, if you just came back from war, you might have this. The right. idea of PTSD being applied more broadly to a variety of human experiences really doesn't become accepted until the like late 2000s. We are very, oh it's God. very recent history in terms of people being like uh, survivors of all sorts of terrible abuses and violence have PTSD. That's like a, a very recent thing. And it feels to us like it's always been around. So yeah, this movie is like, this movie is an irresponsible as someone who 
has PTSD. This movie is an irresponsible portrayal of PTSD, but in a very 1992 way that I kind of can't hold against it. So I'm just that like, was the point yeah. I was trying to make. Yeah. Like they they didn't have they didn't they didn't have the they didn't know what they were stepping into. So they couldn't yeah. they did they couldn't handle responsibly what they didn't know they had a responsibility to handle. I will I I'm will not- say that. <laughs> I will say that, like, I I had a period when I was really struggling with um, suicidal ideation. We should probably put some sort of fucking content warning on this episode. Uh, in, that actually uh, sounds fair, we given we talk about yeah. in... gender identity, sexual orientation, <laughs> uh, PTSD, suicidality. Uh, yeah. What you'd fair. expect from a scent of a woman episode. Sure. But I had this period in uh, 2021 when I was really struggling. And the thing that I sort of worked out with my therapist was to have a thing on the horizon that you can look forward to. So I picked mm-hmm. the fucking fourth Matrix movie. I was like, I got to make it to the fourth Matrix God. movie so I can see that. And this was like summer 2021. It was coming out around Christmas. And we just worked really hard to like bolster everything. And I got to the movie. I saw the movie. And when that happened, I was in a better place. The Like the idea that you can wow. deal with this sort of depression via having a good time in the moment is actually like, extremely harmful and wrong because then when the good time's over the depression comes back times 15 and like they would have known that in the 90s and that i think is why this movie is just like it's just peddling some well they they hallmark greeting card shit (laughs) i i i I don't disagree i think that um they're trying to have their cake and eat it too which is not Mm -hmm. obviously anything new for hollywood uh certainly not anything new for them back in 92 Um, and, and I think that through these, um, this sort of emotional roller coaster of the ups and downs of Frank's personality over the course of certainly over the back half of the movie, they're sort of alluding to that, but to your point, obviously that's not good enough, but I think that, I mean, it, it, it is just interesting that, as I mentioned, Bo Goldman doing One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, that the sort of quite frankly, glib way that he deals with mental illness in this is surprising, I guess is, is, is one way to put it. But yeah. um, let's rate this movie because, Rochelle, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what we're covering next week. Um, as I mentioned, in 92, I loved this movie. I probably would have given it a 90. I watched it a lot. Um, I don't know that it actually, like, I don't know. Uh, it's a strange movie, I guess, on some level for a 12-year-old boy to to be watching as many times as I watched just because to your point earlier, Emily, it's long and it's kind of slow and it's doing a lot of weird stuff, but I guess I just found myself really taken by, as I mentioned, the boarding school stuff and and Pacino's performance. Obviously I've gone down in my rating prior to this podcast. I was at, I was at like a 75 and I'd say now I'm probably at a 70. I mean, again, I know that's probably higher than, certainly is higher than Emily's score. Um, But I think that it's, um, you know, there's stuff that still really works for me. Obviously I've dinged it considerably just in terms of things that have not aged well. Um, But when I hit play on this and I was like, Oh fuck, this movie is two hours and 40 minutes. I was, I was worried because I was just like, I have not watched this in a long time. And I have to say, and I texted this to to you, Emily, and obviously it wasn't the case with you, but I do think it moves pretty well. Um, obviously I'm comparing that to Martin Brest's aforementioned film since where he's clearly learned, uh, nothing 
from making Me- his movies. Meet Joe Black long. is a thrill ride. Come on. Meet Joe Black <laughs> is one of the most boring movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, so, so all this is to say that I'm, I'm going to say I'm at like a 70. Where are you, Rochelle? Yeah, not only are my ratings the same, but all my reasoning is the same. <laughs> all right. Like, well, I'm glad, like, I'm glad that, you know. Like, ditto. You want to know how I feel? Hit the go. Everybody hit the little <laughs> button that goes back 60 seconds. seconds. Yeah. And yeah. 30 seconds. Listen to Phil and, and pretend it was me. That's, uh, yeah, exactly right for me. Okay, great. Emily, let's hear it. Um, I saw this in, I, I do think I saw this in, like, the late 90s. I probably would have been, like, uh, you know three stars two and a half stars so i probably would have been like low 60s okay. uh last night i watched it and was like that's a 30 and i haven't budged it's a 30 <laughs> that's fair i mean listen i i all the if i haven't been clear all the things that you said emily i think are valid like obviously you know this is not one of those situations where um we've had podcasts and most of them have been with the previous host kenny where things get contentious and it feels as though there's no kind of you know um middle ground to be found and i certainly didn't expect to change your opinion on this film but i so appreciate where both you and rochelle have come from in terms of the the myriad of things that we have covered over the course of this uh over the course of this podcast it's been a real journey uh and i appreciate that I will say I girded myself for mis- misogyny. I was just like, this movie is going to be a misogynistic movie. Yeah. I got to be ready for it. And it was in places. And so I was ready for that. I was not prepared to be sideswiped <laughs> by the mental health stuff. I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> that, yes. Um, so so next week, Rochelle, uh, we have Karina Longworth coming on to talk about basic instinct and consenting adults with us. Um, ah. My assumption is that you have not seen consenting adults because who has seen consenting adults I spoiled that i don't like it <laughs> yes yeah, spoiler I, I have not seen consenting adults i but have seen what are, basic instinct i was gonna i'm curious as to your thoughts on on basic instinct do you have thoughts on basic instinct i you know my thoughts on basic instinct are um in in keeping with just to really keep it aligned with this conversation mm. about scent of a woman yes. uh, i just feel so much like i would have to go back sure, like i have sure. to i have to watch it again because I don't trust my memory of it the same way that I realized in rewatching Scent of a Woman that I couldn't trust my memory of this film. No, absolutely. So sure. I don't trust my memory of Basic Instinct. And um, and I don't know what I would have to say about it. And I, I'm so torn because now I now I want to know my own thoughts. You but should I also, watch Basic Instinct. Should I? Yeah. Should I? It's, it's it's kind of a bop. It's, it's got, kind it, of a bang. It is there... kind of a bop? Yep. yep. Like there's, BOP, Bob? Okay. BOP. there's so many problems <laughs> it is so problematic but it just is one of those movies where it's so problematic it leans into the skid and goes around the curve beautifully like uh like frank slade driving a ferrari it's just i can't even just at watching it as a queer woman i can't yep. even describe how like i was like i should be offended by this but i cannot help but stand can I ask no, I question, sort of really remember it as like, Sorry. is it going to be like a surreal acid trip of a movie in terms of like the view, in terms of whose point of view am I in, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it, a it crazy feels, movie. It feels surreal. It's a crazy movie for sure. Yeah. And um, obviously people should listen to our episode next week about it. But Emily, my question And I will. I, I, th- I do think you will, you will be entertained. Do we think that Basic Instinct is more or less sexist than Scent of a Woman? Oh. Oh boy. Textually more, subtextually less. Because Paul Ver- so Paul Verhoeven thinks Catherine Trammell is is great. It's and just awesome. like yeah. 
he thinks she's a fucking rock star and yeah normally i'm like well putting women on a pedestal is also a form of soft misogyny blah 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 but in this case i'm like yes Catherine trammell absolutely we should put her on a pedestal she should kill all of us it's and and she's in a position and she's in a position of power like and that is really important all of the women incentive a woman are like Oh, he's so jolly, so jolly. Right? As opposed, it's like they're so, they're just like so not in a position of power. Whereas she is, she, I don't need to this. I remember. She is fucking in her power. So that matters. It is interesting. You know, one of the things that I've found fascinating about this podcast, Emily, is the iconography of 92. Like Mm -hmm. the things that, like what popped and what became sort of the lingering legacy of 92 in terms of like you know we talk about it on the basic instinct episode but the interrogation scene which is obviously you know i beyond iconic at this point and then you look at like the tango scene from this movie and like that's the iconography that pops from that movie it's just it's just kind of fascinating and speaks to obviously the time but like basic instinct has a much longer legacy i would argue than most movies from 92 we're obviously yeah. still talking about the homoerotic tension yes. between kevin Let's klein and kevin spacey and consenting adults like that's, that's a thing that comes about. up all the time um no i here's here's a here's a 92 iconography thing from scent of a woman did you see the little pay-per-view box on top of the tv in the hotel yes, yes. i was so, so happy to see so that was it was like I seeing was like, an I old friend those. yeah really yep. yeah oh, now i'm gonna yeah you should that's it's fun. and i which i i like watching a movie it, where they make a call from a phone booth <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I hit pause because I was trying to make out what the movies were that were available oh, uh, at the T2's old... in there. Yeah, T2 T2 is available at the Waldorf Astoria. Oh my god, <laughs> for twenty nine ninety nine. It's incredible. But listen, uh, Rochelle, I mean, always an absolute pleasure to have you on. You are without a doubt one of my favorite guests. You always bring um, insight and heart, and I just appreciate that so much. I feel like um you really apply yourself on these podcasts and i really 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 appreciate that i don't mean that in a in a in a silly way um and this was this was a this was a wild ride this episode was a lot so i i really do appreciate that you that you uh you know brought yourself yeah i love no i love this you know i love this and i love talking to you and i love coming back because it feels like these are becoming more and more like our three-hour lunches that we have (laughs) right where it's just like therapy sessions and it could go anywhere and Uh we can take Uh any thread no matter how loose and tie it to something else that just feels like we're so like we're getting very skilled at that i really (laughs) absolutely i mean (laughs) you know the the patreon episode that you came on for elvis and emmadeus was a real Mm -hmm. uh, barn burner so yes (laughs) Uh, i was just i was gonna ask rochelle where 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 can people find you do you have anything you want to plug at the moment uh oh thank you know i'm uh yeah you can currently find me uh i don't know angry and tearful on instagram um at uh rochelle Fe- all my stuff is just at rochelle Fev. um i still have the instagram really is the only one i still have a twitter handle but i basically use it to check tornado warnings in nashville and that's kind of it um so Fair enough. yeah Fair enough. In- in- instagram and then yeah if people want to follow me and then if i do stuff people can watch it or not watch it but People should follow the, you the, on Instagram. The you, personal me is on it. The personal me is on Instagram for better. Your stories worse. are wonderful on Instagram. Obviously the pictures, but like, you know, all the stuff that you're saying on there is 
uh, speaking of mental health, all really good stuff for people to see. And I see. just followed you. There so. you go. So you got, there you you go. got another follower, Rochelle. Yay! Yeah, trying to. Yeah. <laughs> I no, it's I, I say that no, sorry, sorry, it's not about you're you're yeah. you're you're landing the plane. I'm gonna let you land the plane, yeah. but I just will say when I went, yay! It's not that I don't care about my followers. Of course I do, and it's so nice sure. to have followers, and that's why I'm on Instagram. To be but clear, also, um, to be clear, what? To be clear, you only don't care that I'm following. And that's yeah, no, that's I what I meant. That. I yeah. just meant after you didn't like scent of a woman, and uh, I didn't really oh give a God. shit. No, no, I just I like you, Phil. We've talked about this, and yes. this is a whole other conversation. But just you know, what is what is social media for? What am I doing with yes. it? What am I using it for? Do I really have anything to say? Is what I have to say of value? Does anybody need to hear it? So these are the things that when about having followers, it's like, yay! What do I do with that? And you know, so but I that to, to, that just to, to to double down on what I just said, I do yeah. think that you think about these things, and a lot of people on social media don't think about those things, right? They're just kind of they're looking for likes. And and the dopamine hit of people liking their stuff and that's all fine and good but i appreciate people that have the amount of followers that you have and you know weaponize it for good rather than evil and try to actually try to make it a conversation and try to help people out there um you know and i think that especially considering the conversation we were having about mental health all that stuff is just really important yeah. and that people should be following people that help them feel good about the world and i think you're one of those people so that's just thank important. you i really appreciate that and to all the people who think i should think about it less and just post selfies of my new lipstick and tell you what i eat in a day sorry not sorry that's yeah. you're not gonna get that <laughs> yeah, but, from her you're not gonna get that from me yeah. Can you tell Although, me I'll about a new lipstick? lipstick every now and then? I did actually do a post. I did. I did very much like a lipstick once and do a post on it. I think. <laughs> yeah. I, mean... I love. I love lipstick tips. What can I say? I'm yeah, a lady. Yeah. There you go. There's nothing. You... Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, thank you so right. so much, Rochelle. You're the best. Okay. Uh, can't you wait too. to talk with you in the future. You too, Emily. So great to meet you this way. Great so to fun. meet you. Yeah. <laughs> Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.